0: You're listening to The Lowdown, a podcast inspired by the creative people in the bass making community. I'm Frankie. I'll be sitting down with bass makers to explore what drives them creatively and to find out what challenges they face in business of bass. Let's find out what it's all about. Let's get The Lowdown. We are. Hey, welcome to The Lowdown. Uh, usual suspects, Eric is here with me, uh, Frankie. We have a Alan Derrimo here this week and today or, you know, I'm not really sure how often we do these anymore, but we're really <laughs> pleased to have- 2020. That's right. That's the way it is. It's the new normal. Right. Uh, we're really pleased to have Alan here. Alan has a uh, resume, like three miles long of uh, really, really cool artists he's played with. And uh, he's got uh, a lot of great stuff I'm sure we're gonna be able to talk about, but also, Alan likes to uh you know, uh I tinker. Tinker would be a great word. Yeah. I mean, just you know, like like we all do, kind of like uh, you know, kind of mess with something that might already be great, but like you have that little extra like boy, I wish it had a little bit more of this or a little less of that. And next thing you know, boy, you get like a really super instrument, right? I mean that's how I kind of look at it. Yep.
1: Yeah, yeah um, Tinkering is something that I've done probably since I was 12 years old uh, with the very first instruments that I had. Um, The first bass being a Tisco from the late 60s, which was really a piece of crap. Um, (laughs) But um, now they're going for, you know, probably in the high three figures. So some people like them, but yeah, it's crazy. Yeah for some reason I had uh, an inclination to paint the body black. So that was my first actual um, mod or attempt to, to alter anything on an instrument that I had. And so yeah. I bought a can of black spray paint and taped off the the parts. <laughs> I didn't even have the... the um, smarts to actually disassemble the bass and you know take the pickups out and things like that so uh it was a very crude attempt um and then i ended up i think just trading it away for a guitar a few years later um the neck was severely bowed and it was pretty unplayable anyway well it was a tease so yeah and then um probably my <laughs> nice. my second attempt at, at any sort of mod was uh on the first name brand base i had which was a, a gibson ebo from about 1970 cool. a real mud machine um kind of a and um i wanted to make it less of a mud machine so i i ordered a fender telecaster based pickup cool. removed the humbucker and uh, mounted the the um base pickup in and soldered it in and fortunately I didn't have to do anything but angle the pickup a little bit to get the magnets to line up with the strings. Yeah. And it was a marginal improvement. I mean, it still was pretty crappy, but um, I actually used it that way until I ended up trading it away for a P base a couple years later. And I've probably been basically a Fender guy ever since, although probably only half the instruments I I own now are actual Fenders. But um, that's always kind of my orientation. Cool. Do you you find
0: uh, we more of a P bass guy or a J bass guy?
1: I have been historically a J bass guy until about two years ago. And I really kind of moved into the P bass camp. I always tended to record with P basses more. For some reason, um, it just always was a more surefire um, solution for recording. But um, I've kind of moved squarely into P basses for live playing as well. Um, Although on a lot of gigs, I need um, a five string just because the music calls for it. And I don't happen to own a five string P but I would like to acquire one sometime soon. That's kind of the next thing on the list. If I ever have any live gigs again.
0: Boy, oh boy.
2: Yeah, that's and that's
1: life. a whole other subject.
2: Yeah, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Are, you, are you gigging at all right now?
1: I've had a handful of gigs um, since the late summer. Um, we kind of moved out of the strict lockdown in California yeah. um, around the middle of the summer. So there were some outdoor gigs that came back, some of which I had already had booked that were kind of questionable whether they would would be canceled or not. Um, and I haven't really felt totally comfortable gigging because oh, yeah. of the varying precautions that that people are taking both audience wise and, and crew sure. people and so forth. So as much as I would love to get out and play, it just, um, in a lot of cases, it doesn't feel real safe right now to do that.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I kind of, I kind of definitely messed with everybody's mojo. I think this year, uh, 2020 just needs to go away and be done. Truly. yeah.
1: Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I don't depend entirely on touring for my work, but, um, my friends that do have really been hit hard and, um, you know, right now their unemployment's about to run out and it just, could be very tenuous for some people,
0: yeah. Yeah, I, I know a couple of folks that uh, are techs, you know, who are touring techs. You know, usually, you know, they're doing a tour and then they already have a plan for you know what they're jumping onto next. And next, yeah, and there's just been it's just all kind of dried up, you know, yeah. so it's just you know, not a great time, that's for sure. No, it isn't. That's scary.
2: So, so talk to us a little bit about you know, so the listeners on this podcast, uh, primarily you are either bass players themselves or they are uh, luthiers that are building. And, you know, now is sort of like the time that everybody's doing that, you know, because they can't get out. Sure. So so we see lots of people that are just coming in and, you know, they're ordering things, you know, working, you know, working in in the garage or the basement or, you know, and just sort of kind of gearing up for the winter, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, so, how would you get your start, and uh, tell us tell us how that all got got going?
1: Well, um, my dad is a professional musician. He um, plays saxophone, clarinet, and flute. And um, his kind of heyday was in the late '50s and early '60s. He played on recordings by Frank Sinatra and Nat King Cole, and wow. Um, played with a lot of well-known big bands of the time, like Stan Kenton, uh, Les Brown, Ray McKinley. Um, He was my inspiration to get into music. So the first instrument that I actually picked up was clarinet. But around the same time, I started playing guitar and was learning just the typical garage band stuff that any kid would in that era. Mm -hmm. Um, And of course, the Beatles were a huge influence, you know, coming along around that time. And you know, just causing a huge surge uh, in interest in string instruments and, and bands and that sort of thing. So um, I was playing guitar, you know, taking lessons and kind of progressing semi seriously. But my dad noticed that I was actually picking bass lines out on the guitar. And he said, "I think I should get you a bass, which he eventually did. so maybe for my ninth birthday I got the Tysco bass that I mentioned earlier. And um, even though I, I played clarinet, saxophone and flute also all the way through college, the bass was kind of the always the most fun thing for me to do and eventually it kind of took over and the other instruments fell away, although I, I still do play guitar quite a bit on the recording side of things. So um, I just um, kind of started playing in bands in high school and um, progressed into actual working bands around the time I was maybe 18. And that, at the time, that meant club bands that played five to seven nights a week. So that was really um, kind of being in the trenches for me and, and learning the most um, in a real, real, word, real world situation. And fortunately I had the discipline to make use of that time and um, really check out, you know, in the cover bands that I played in, I analyzed the records that had the songs we were learning and and kind of dug into what made them good and, you know, what, what I could gain from learning all the parts in the record. And that was a big part of my musical education as well as the formal side of things, being a musical major, music major in college and um, having a background in theory and all that sort of stuff.
0: That's really
1: cool. So that was kind of the genesis of it. And um, eventually I started um, working with maybe somewhat more well-known people in my 20s and just kind of continued on from there. When
0: when would you say was like the the one gig or the one like person you started playing with where you kind of said wow this is kind of this is it this is really sort of happening for me on a on the uh, like a slightly bigger kind of scale than was happening before?
1: Well, probably um, this would have been um, in the early '90s, and I had been playing for a while already, but I I was living in LA and. Um, uh, ended up playing with a band called Cecilia Noel and the Wild Clams, which um, had a bunch of gigs around LA and occasionally out of town, but um, kind of most steadily, um, a regular Monday night um, gig at the Big Potato in North Hollywood. And that lasted for a few years and, and was quite a draw just for all kinds of musicians coming through town and, and, um, it was known probably for a while as, as the band to see in town. So that was a great deal of exposure um, being in that situation, playing with all kinds of great players, particularly drummers and percussionists. Mm -hmm. And um, a lot of things that I've done on higher levels actually came out of that situation in in different ways. Uh, Even um, playing with John Denver which I did for a few years in the mid and late 90s until he passed away. Um, That came out of the Wild Clams because the percussionist that was working with John was in the Wild Clams. Um, They had an opening in the bass chair with John and um, he threw my name in the hat for that one. So um, a lot of it really does kind of come back to the Idea of just being visible, you know, being out there on the scene and and seen and heard by people. So I'd have to say, to answer Frankie's question, that that situation with Cecilia Noel was really um, kind of pivotal for me as far as just getting lots of exposure and and breaking into some other kinds of work.
0: That's really cool, kind of you know, obviously a band where uh, all the players are great. They obviously have yeah, a well, of just players. for
1: example. Um, With that band on the drum side, the regular drummer in the beginning was Tristan Bowden, who played with Chicago for 28 years. Um, I had known him before I got in that band, and he was kind of my in. But some of the other drummers that played in the band when Tris was gone were Simon Phillips, Dave Weckl, um, Jonathan Moffat, who played with Michael Jackson, people like that, Um, uh, Walfredo Reyes, uh, just tons of amazing drummers and percussionists as well. So Gosh, um, awesome. that was a treat for me to play the same music with a bunch of different drummers and kind of experience the differences and, and their feels and, and their approaches to time. And, and um, that was a real education.
0: Oh, for sure. Uh, I mean, there's nothing like playing with a great drummer. It's, it's just great how different they all can be, which is true of, of all instrumentalists. But yeah, the way the time is felt, Especially it can be a whole whole new thing with, with with certain you know playing with certain drummers for sure. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, Simon Phillips. I love Simon Phillips. Uh, like his-
1: yeah, he was incredible. Um, he's such a good listener, and um, he had not played much Latin music before. And that band was primarily sort of a salsa, rock, jazz, psychedelic kind of hybrid, with even some hip hop elements coming in toward the end. But uh, Simon really um, glommed on to the aspects of Latin music that he hadn't strangely done much before. And by the time we ended up doing a gig, he had totally nailed it.
0: Yeah, I'm not surprised. Just decided he wanted to learn it and just do it head first and got it right down. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. you've, You've, I mean, I know for myself, I mean, having played with like two or three like you know drummers I consider to be exceptional, you know, based on the drummers I've played with, you know, not name drummers, you know, at all, but you know, getting to play with a great drummer is like if you have to do that even once, that's a really wonderful thing, but you've done it like a, a lot of times. So it's really uh that's pretty, pretty damn uh, cool, you know.
1: Yeah, um and you know? just um playing with a drummer that that listens not just to the bass, but to everything else that's yeah. going on. Um, and that that pairing of the bass and drums, and if you're on the same wavelength, it's it's a feeling that's just like nothing else for me. And I'm sure for you guys too. Oh, for sure. It's like, it's like magic,
0: you know, I don't know how else to describe it. It just kind of, everything feels right. It doesn't matter what you do, everything feels right. You know, you, you just get this, you really know what's going to happen as, it, you know, before it happens, it feels like when that's happening
2: yeah exactly yeah so talk to us a little bit if you can uh, uh there's uh let's see if i can share it real quick and show you um so talk to us a little bit about the the base that i have okay
1: <laughs> um what you guys are looking at is um kind of a part space that um is made up of a warmth cottonwood body and a late 90s Fender Genuine uh, replacement p-base neck. And this was sort of my first attempt at a parts base. Um, The body I picked up from the Warmoth booth at the NAMM show, um, probably 1992. And I wasn't really looking for a cottonwood body specifically, but they kind of sold me on it saying, cottonwood is is similar to basswood, but more durable. similarly lightweight and resonant. And uh, so I just kind of took a chance on it. And um, I actually had a warmoth Jazz neck on it initially, but um, it didn't really work totally until I found this P-Bass neck a few years later. So um, it was also my first attempt at finishing. And um, somehow I had um, gone, some information about nitro finishes. At the time, there wasn't YouTube or, you know, a lot of resources for, for learning about finishing. Yeah. So uh, some of it came from uh, Stu Mac videos, uh, Dan Erlewine being, you know, a great craftsman, a great teacher, um, had some good pointers. And um, I actually used um, tempera paint for the color. Tempera paint is, you know, typically like an art school yeah. product, you know, or, you know, kids use it to paint. Um, so the actual color coat initially was a sonic blue tempera paint. Um, and then I sprayed nitro over it. But strangely enough, um, as I built up the coats of the, the clear nitro, um, it yellowed and became this kind of pukey green color that that you see, so the the color wasn't intentional. It was a total accident, actually, and um, it ended up being kind of a nebulous color in terms of not really matching any legitimate Fender color from the era, or even you know more modern Fender colors. But it it has a look that that is kind of cool, and. Um, yeah uh the picker that you guys see on it is uh um from spitfire tortoiseshell i don't know if you know about those about spitfire but um it's a guy in central california that crafts pretty authentic um looking tortoiseshell pickards and so that's where that came from the pickups are uh duncan antiquity twos uh the bridge on there is actually from a 64 Jazz Bass, which I also own. But um, I have a badass bridge on on the Jazz Bass, which would be sacrilege to a lot of people. But um, for some reason, it it did actually help a lot of things on the Jazz Bass. So that bridge was just sitting around, and I ended up putting it on this bass. Um, So it's a lot of happy accidents. And it happens to be my number one recording bass. It just sounds amazing. Totally authentic early '60s thump, and um, one thing that really helps that is the strings are 20 years old. They're um, Lakeland Joe Osborne flats that I put on probably in '99, wow. and um, they've managed to hold their pitch and not unravel or, or you know, sort of decompose in any way that makes them yeah. unusable. But um, that's pretty much the size of it. Um, I actually have it right here and um it's pretty light weighs about eight and a half pounds the tuners are Gotos, and um on most of my fenders i end up putting um hip shot detuners on them just because if i play live it's nice to have that option to jump down to the d and e yeah. flats. i'm sure you guys know oh, yeah uh, but this one since i tend to use it mostly just for recording i i don't have a detuner, on this one um it's got a repro decal which i don't know it's kind of yeah borderline illegal but (laughs) um we'll we'll, we'll
0: just call that artistic
1: yeah (laughs) and there are a couple spots i don't know if you can see it on the camera where um there's some finish chips and you can see through to the sonic blue oh yeah the color. that's great um there's one ship right couple in this area here what's what's
0: cool is like it's it it is typical for for the to yellow you know over time but it it, it, yeah it's it almost like makes it look like it wants to glow in the dark
1: yeah Yeah. um yeah it's it's a cool color and one other strange um accidental byproduct was there's some serious finish checking i don't know if you can see it at all but um i think it resulted from from putting the clear coats on too early before the color code it actually yeah, <laughs> totally yeah. dried so it it shrunk or you know um, um checked in this really authentically crazy way um so um you know when i do take this thing out and play live uh, people are pretty impressed because it it looks like an old base, but it's just uh, all of that is is um, really
0: accidental. And, and think about that for what came about accidentally, just because of your just a desire and willingness to experiment. You, you, I mean, if you would have paid somebody at like the custom shop, to, try to yeah, such a thing, yeah, you know, yeah, the relic, uh, you know, yeah. guys <laughs> that specialize
1: in in relic finishes, um, yeah. you know, this would be right in their um, wheelhouse. But um, it all just came out of my, um, ignorance or innocence, uh, as a builder. And again, you know, builder is probably overstating, it. um, assembler.
2: So, so talk to us about that. That's, that's sort of fascinating to me, right? There's a, there's so many of our, you know, our listeners that are on that, you know, are, are sort of, you know, they, they get in a point where this is their first you know, mod, this is their first, you know, sort of foray into doing anything with the electronics or or, or anything else really on the base, mm-hmm. because they're trying to find that sort of dial in that sound that they're looking for. And, you know, it's a scary thing, right? I mean, the very first time you do anything, you certainly, if you start messing with the wood, like what, so do you have any advice for, you know, the listeners, like in terms of like, like getting over that sort of that anxiety. <laughs> right well, out. I
1: would I would say um don't do anything irreversible until you are willing to kind of commit 100% to altering an instrument in a way that may not be um you may not be able to put it back to its original state. Um something advice. like something like swapping out pickups uh is not that invasive, you know, particularly if you use the same screw holes, if there's nothing else that really changes the instrument. And again, it also kind of depends on the value of the instrument. And obviously with a vintage instrument, you'd be probably less likely to want to do something serious in terms of altering the instrument. um, If you can't put it back to its original state, if you are trying to maintain the collectible value of it and, and so forth. So things like altering pickups, swapping out bridges, tuners, um, those are all in most cases, things that, that can be done without um, really any harm to the instrument. Um, and I've done a lot of that, particularly with pickups and bridges to try to improve instruments. And sometimes it it's, Hard to determine what the effect will be.
0: Sure,
1: um, I've had some bases where I've gone through maybe three or four different sets of pickups, and there's not much change because there are just some inherent factors in the way the instrument is acoustically that pickups can't solve or or make better. Um, um sometimes uh a pickup swap can be just night and day like the the relic i'm sorry not relic the road worn p bass that i showed you guys that was a case where the pickups really were um a gigantic help and um there are lindy frailins that i got from you guys i believe and um that was just a great um improvement in terms of the richness of the sound the output the Evenness of the response in all registers. So um, it's really um, requires being willing to experiment and not always um, getting the results that you expect. And another good example of that is with bridges. And um, there's always a debate about high mass bridges versus lightweight bridges and uh, how that affects uh, sustain and resonance and all that sort of stuff. And um, I find that there's really no hard, hard and fast rule. In a lot of cases, a high mass bridge will kind of choke the instruments resonance if you have a lightweight body but that's not always true um a good example of that is my 64 jazz here which um has a badass bridge on it and the badass bridge is is not really the most uh, refined or evolved uh, version of a high mass bridge out there you know obviously there are some newer ones that are much was one of the first right i mean that's yeah that's it the was thing. the yeah. first really um, um there are a lot better ones out there in terms of construction and design, but um, for some reason there's something about a badass that that can really just work. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not exactly sure why I mean um, They're funky in a lot of ways. So this jazz bass had some serious dead spots on the G string. Um, particularly like the fourth to fifth fret area. Um, and so just uh, Kind of as an experiment, I threw a badass bridge on it, and it completely solved that, as well as just kind of focusing the tone overall, yeah. like, from top to bottom. Um, but I've done a similar thing on other Fenders or Fender clones, and found that that the badass just sounds terrible. Indeed. Well, you know, it, it's
0: interesting. What, what I have found with with the high mass bridges, uh, have, getting to compare tons of them, and you know, just getting to you know, play. Maybe you know play them and everything, especially the later. If you take like a later duty Fender bridge, like your '64, that's now on on your P base uh, it, it it seems like at least when you when I'm looking at a signal, uh, the initial attack transient in the treble response is much higher than what ends up being the base, you know, the mids and the base. Where yeah. the badass kind of tames that attack transient, but so everything's a bit more. Compressed, yeah, yeah, dynamically and totally, and as a result, that's why it almost seems like it's sustaining better sometimes because your ear isn't immediately just jumping onto that really super loud attack transient right out of the shoot. But
1: that doesn't always
0: play out depending on the instrument, you know, obviously. But that seems like that tends to be the way it kind of goes.
2: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so the the advice the advice is don't start on something that you can't, you know, kind of for lack of a better word, you know, afford a mistake, (laughs) right. Or, or undo. And then the other is, you know, potentially anyway, like a lot of our listeners do, they, they just start out on something. They just pick up on Craigslist or eBay or something and they can just kind of, you know, it's, it's sort of their, their test, you know, playground, right. They can play around a little bit and, and, and do some stuff. And then when they're ready to, graduate to something that they're playing on a regular basis they can they can uh you know graduate to that does that sound right
1: i'd say so um i'm kind of summarizing that would be maybe just to say to proceed cautiously but um you kind of touched on um maybe trying to improve uh an entry-level instrument um, where a lot of times all of the hardware and electronics would be a little bit subpar. Yeah. Um, and that might be an area where you're more guaranteed to have results by just going with a better pickup or bridge or
2: yeah. more yeah.
1: tuners.
0: Yeah. Of course, you know, the great part of that is like, you. Know, thankfully, you know that tends to be where uh, the more affordable issues kind of suffer, you know, They even put, you know, like a, a pickup shaped object in there. Yeah. You know, but but luckily, you know, the, the woodworking and everything else you know, is just fine, you know. So, uh, exactly. Just kind of uh, the, the other great thing, too, is especially why, you know, starting with a bridge is a great place to start, especially with a fender. I mean, there's so many bridges available now that will just directly retrofit a fender. So if you, if you, you know want to try one of these bridges like something like a babix or something you know or a babich depending how it's pronounced yeah i'm not really sure you know or or, or a, you know a badass or one of their clones like the Kickass or the the omega or any of the fender mounts uh, hip, hip shot a or b style stuff i mean you can as long as you get a fender mount version of it you can always change your mind it's like it never happened you know you're not gonna mar the instrument in any way
1: yeah. And, exactly and, yeah yeah. maybe that's how i've built up such a huge stash of, of parts by <laughs> a lot of trial and error yeah. um along those lines yeah
0: well it's funny when you were talking earlier about uh back back to the, the tisco and like taping around the parts you know to paint it i mean i remember being 12 and tinkering with stuff and usually ruining it and never being able to get it back you know like play with radios and you, you know guitars and stuff too and yeah uh, it's intimidating to get in there and start you know snipping wires or unsoldering things and hoping you're going to have a a prayer putting it back where where it came from you know correctly you know so right kind of industrious i think to just kind of tape around everything
1: (laughs) yeah well um kind of along those lines um it's been a real benefit for me to take advantage of your pre-wired harnesses with the preamps um it just saves a lot of um headache and and um, if someone like me who doesn't have top-notch soldering skills I mean they've gotten a little bit better over time but you know not top level Uh, it's so much easier to to have that and be able to just basically drop it in Um, save me a lot of time and headaches.
0: Indeed. Well, well, and that's the thing. It's like anything. I mean, obviously, like you, you spend a fair amount of time in the studio. So for someone who, who wasn't real familiar with that whole, uh, just the process of recording in that way, that sort of thing, you know, it, 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 just having repetitions and doing something constantly, like speaking another language or you know, making solder joints, so, you know, it's just, it's just anything you get to do a whole bunch of times. As long as you're, as long as you're conscious about it, it's hopefully going to get better, you know, <laughs> <That's> yeah. sure, <laughs> yeah, yeah. but no, that's
1: cool. Uh, mm-hmm. um we want to talk about my yamaha six string of course okay yeah, this is six string. let's do that absolutely all right um i think eric has a picture of it uh the yamaha trb 6p
2: i do i'll pull it up you can yeah start talking about it
1: this is um Relatively recent acquisition, I got it toward the end of last year. Um, it's a 1992 Yamaha TRB-6P that basically has sat in its case um, almost its entire life. Wow. Uh, the original owner was a Yamaha Dorsey, who was basically a guitar player, but Yamaha um, sent him this bass for whatever reason. And um, it ended up just sitting around in in his house until he passed away. Uh, His son had it. But um, in the meantime, um, it was stored in a storage base in Arizona, a non-climate controlled storage space. So I didn't realize it until I got it, but there were some damage as a result of of the base just sitting in its case in a um basically a harsh climate environment <laughs> yeah. so uh that's not it actually um it's the amber colored one it was in the second email
2: oh yeah okay
1: yeah i think you have it yeah, so this
0: is a, the amber one you're holding has quite a flame going, on, like really, like a really tight flame pattern. It's really. It does, cool. yeah. It has
1: more flame than most of them do. Because um, yeah, usually, you, I, I'm very
0: used to seeing the, the quilt, like the red one. That's seems way more common, but that's really great. But you, you could even you could even see the tiger, uh, like in the finish a little bit. You know. The, yeah,
1: exactly. Yeah. Um, I think they just used all different kinds of maple, um, whatever they could get. Some of it was was more curly for sure. Um, but um, as far as the, um, the effects of, of the base really not being maintained and stored in that kind of environment, um, the, the fingerboard would shrink quite a bit um, sure. because there was some serious fret sprout. I can imagine there would be, yeah. And um, I used a fret, fret end file and was able to get rid of all that myself. But um, what happened? Was the frets actually poked through the finish? Yeah. Um, the base has a a really thick poly finish, which actually extends to the top to the edge of the fingerboard. Yeah. So there's thick finish on the on the actual um, ebony on the side of the of the of the neck. Did, did the just the part of the fingerboard, yeah. Did it crack so, it poked through or did it crack around the whole neck. Like, well, it it cracked place. in a. In a few places around the frets, I don't know if you can see, but um, oh yeah, yeah, you can see, you can yeah. see,
0: you can see a little air under you know, toward the
1: top yeah. there. Um, yeah, there's some bubbles of finish that that poke through. Um, well, you know, as you the frets
0: sprout. up here in the northeast, <laughs> I've seen that a fair amount of times. So uh, February is the driest month of the year up here usually. So if you have fret sprouts, that's uh, that's the month you want to fix them. And I bet, yeah. That's usually month, when that sort of thing happens. Um, yeah, and then another, um, especially things like Gibson's, you see that sort of thing a lot. I bet. Bound fingerboards.
1: Another um, kind of uh, unfortunate thing is there's a fingerboard crack in the center of the fingerboard at the very end above the twenty fourth fret. Mm-hmm.
0: The, the, can you tell from looking at the end grain, does it go all the way through the fingerboard or is it just more of a surface thing?
1: I think it's surface, yeah. And eventually, I think if I get any fret work done, um, I'll have someone fill it in. Um, I guess the solution would be just using um, ebony dust, you know, that yes. Ma- ma- yes. matches the color of the fingerboard and gluing it in there with super glue. Correct, yeah. There's so there's it's there. not a huge... Uh, Thing as far as affecting the playability or anything, but it's kind of unfortunate that there's a, a long fingerboard crack. And another really odd thing is um, the poly finish on the body actually shrunk to the point that you can feel the grain. Uh, that's what I was thinking. I could actually yeah. see. it
0: looked like it had a texture. Like, I guess yeah, you and you you can see a, it. Illusion, yeah.
1: And that's very odd. And something I have never seen before. Um, uh, obviously, it doesn't affect. No the playability of the instrument but it's it's kind of a strange thing to to see so i guess um the lesson in all of that is um it is important to maintain instruments even if they're just being stored for a long period of time Um, i'm sure that oiling the fingerboard periodically um having it in a maybe a humidified case or or something that helped a humidifier in the case, I should say something that that kept the humidity more constant uh, would have prevented some of those things from happening. But um, apart from that, I mean, I don't know if you guys have played one of these, but they're kind of interesting. Um, They have sort of the early nineties style of thick poly finish, gold hardware, body design um all those things that that made it kind of an expensive instrument for Yamaha to produce so they didn't do it this way for very long until they went to uh um uh bolt-on neck and you know some things that I'm sure were much more cost effective for them to make but
0: it, it, it's got a pretty full string spacing too right it's kind of like a four string yeah two extra strings on it I mean it's like it's a it's two and a quarters inch
1: two and a quarter at the nut um, 19 millimeter spacing at the bridge and um, that actually suits me because I like wide spacing um, kind of the wider the better for me but um, it also was kind of unusual at the time to have that wide of a neck um, a lot of the earlier multi-string bases have very narrow necks and that I don't know what the origin of that is. Maybe um, people that designed them just had small hands and, and it felt comfortable for them, but not, well, not to play.
0: Well, I, I think I think some of it, it might blend a certain amount to economy too. Like I'm, I, I, I'm thinking like something like you know Carvin before they were Kiesel, but actually after they were Kiesel and then they were Carvin out of Kiesel again, but that's really good. But you know, mm-hmm. uh, so like, you know, like the LB 70 would have 19 millimeter spacing and then you yep. get to the five string and then the neck wouldn't be that much larger and then you'd be at like 17 millimeter spacing and then you'd be all the way down to 16 yep. and a half spacing by the time you got to a six string and they're using the same pickup pickup shape for all you know four or five and six strings you
1: know right and uh so the outer strings probably barely clear the magnets on the pickups
0: <laughs> right and, and, and like some companies like like ibanez or some of the Lakeland skyline stuff where they'll they'll use the you know the license mk one pickup shape when they'll use it for four five and six string you know because it's just blades internally so whatever you know as so long as it fits within the sensing area right it's, it's happening but yeah. but you know then obviously like your know, music man stingray five string you know kind of the 17 and a half millimeter spacing versus 19 i think some of it's just a matter of you know just not having to have a neck blank that is so giant yeah maybe.
1: not all that additional tooling to to um, to mill next to different sizes, yeah. yeah but potentially, I'm only speculating, but is- <laughs> yeah. Well, it sounds logical. It sounds like you're right. Um, and this instrument also has um, piezo pickup elements in the bridge, which was kind of a unique and strange idea. But um, um, you can blend that piezo in with the magnetic pickups and um, there's a cut switch, a low-frequency cut switch, which I think acts at about 60.
0: Yeah, it gets rid of that boomy kind of.
1: Yeah, so I've actually found that to be kind of cool to be able to dial in some of the, the piezo signal. It's a nice kind of woody acoustic sound that if you get it blended a certain way with the magnetic pickups, it's, it's kind of an interesting flavor. Cool. Well, i imagine, especially too,
0: if you're doing a lot of, uh, you know, if you're playing a lot of more like chordal kind of things, it probably would help it, you know, help there to be a little bit more articulation and just you with know, it really responding differently, um, too. Yeah. Your strings are, are, those, are those like uh, like super steps or like contact core super steels? Uh, they are like, uh, they
1: are contact core super steels, yeah. Um.
0: I can guess strings. <laughs> yeah, that's great. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> You've seen wow, enough Mickey. of them yeah I, I i those are those are awesome strings those are great those are great strings. they are yeah i've, uh, I've been a
1: ghs in yeah. dorsey for a long time and uh, um they've been my main strings for ages yeah nice piano full spectrum kind of tone with those and they feel great too yeah truly yeah
0: very nice mm-hmm. what, what what like uh, i wanted to ask you when you had uh, like the last bass out too like like uh any like Things that you've recorded on it that really stick out to you is like something that was like really great that you're really proud of that you played played with that particular instrument That's
1: on like, the the Warmth p bass
0: yeah or, or just even if there's like a you have a cool like story yeah. like you know, attached to it
1: i mean either either bass and all of them honestly you know i mean yeah but, well I, I wish there was a cool story attached to it uh, <laughs> but, <laughs> um, but i have used it on a lot of records i mean none of which are really huge hits but um you can definitely hear it out there. Um, there's a, a record that I actually produced and played all the bass on um, that's just coming out this week, I think, or next week. Um, the artist is uh, Sean Della Croce. She's a singer-songwriter from Nashville. And um, uh, this record is uh, being released on a Concord uh, subsidiary label. And uh, it'll be on all the streaming platforms. Uh, Sean Delacroce, D-E-L-L-A-C-R-O-C-E. The record's called Illuminations. And uh, on almost every track that I played electric bass, um, I use the Wormuth P. Um, The other half of the tracks are upright bass. But um, um, there is one song called Monument. On that album, that um, has a lot of melodic stuff on the bass, where you can really kind of hear the character of that bass um, up in the high register. So, if anybody is uh, inclined enough to check it out, that's that's a good example of it. I'll definitely check
0: it out. I'll definitely check that out. That's great.
2: Um, so, in terms of in terms of the way that, um, I mean. Just sounds like your music has evolved over the years. What about the, the actual instruments you're playing, or or what you know? Sort of, what does the next ten years look like? I mean, is that like if like I'm gonna continue to move along the same same sort of path I've been on, or is there any kind of experimentation you're doing? Like, what do you? What's the next ten years look like? Assuming that we can get out into the world again.
1: Yeah. Um... Well, I hope to be able to get in front of audiences uh, with some of the various bands that I'm playing in, um, uh, if things improve um, with the pandemic. I'm hoping that they will, like everybody else. But apart from that, um, really, for about the last 20 years, I've been moving more into the recording and producing side of things, and um, that started in the early 2000s where um i did a lot of scoring for action sports film and video projects um things like the fuel tv network and um uh my brother-in-law is uh a pretty well-known professional skateboarder tony hawk no way so um yeah (laughs) so he um (laughs) Was able to kind of pull me in on some of his video projects and that was my entree into that world. Cool. Um, And that kind of culminated with... um, That's awesome. Being the musical director for his uh, Boom Boom Huck Jam tour that happened in the mid 2000s. That was an an arena tour that included um, skating, BMX, motocross, and music. Right. For the first two years, it was live bands um and then it kind of progressed more into pre records which i I did as well but um that was kind of a um you know lifetime experience mm-hmm. uh, but to answer your question um I think I see things for me going more into the world of of producing and recording music, yeah. Um, and for the most part, in the last few years already, it's been kind of 50-50 in that respect. This year, um, once we were locked down, recording was pretty much all anybody was doing for a while musically. So I had quite a flurry of projects, ranging from just doing bass tracks for other people to full on production. Um, for a couple of album projects for outside clients here, mm-hmm. Yep. and there's more of that going on. And um, the hope for me also is to get out a solo project, which always seems to be on the back burner because things that pay the bills uh, seem to take precedence over that. Yeah. But you know, I've I've already accumulated kind of a nearly an album's worth of material, um, some of which originated in scoring projects and kind of repurposed it for for um, an actual album. Um, that's what I see. I mean, 10 years is, is a long way out to make a prediction, but um, I kind of favor having a balance of different things. I, I'm not ever really contentious doing one thing. Yeah. So the balance between playing live and recording is is always, Good for me to have, and I hope that that (laughs) continues as long as I'm physically able to 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 carry gear.
2: Yeah, I mean, one thing inspires the other. Yeah, yeah, one thing inspires the other. I think, and and they're
0: so different. I mean, they're they're, I I love them both for completely different reasons. You know, it's just a you know, live is just a different animal than being in the studio or or writing, and the whole process is just so different. But.
1: It is. And they do kind of both feed each other as Eric said. Yeah. Agreed.
2: Cool. So I guess, uh, I don't know, Frankie, last question. You want to wrap it up? We've got, there's, I've got a question uh, and, and I know, well, I'll give Frankie a minute. My here's my question. So I love, I love to sort of ask this because there are so many people that we talk to when we do these podcasts and I learned so much. Uh, one of the things that, that I, I realize is that there, you know, people sort of have these, you know, networks of concentric circles of like-minded people that they like to work with and play with and, 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 you know, collaborate with. Um, mm-hmm. So if we could just interview anybody in your uh, like, immediate circle, somebody that inspires you, somebody that you play with, or work, it could be anybody really, mm-hmm. uh, who, would that, who would that be? Who would you recommend?
1: Well, I think there was some, uh, There are some bass players that I know that you probably would really enjoy talking to. Um, one guy that comes to mind, um, who you probably haven't heard of, his name is Stuart Liebig. And um, he lives in Los Angeles. I've known him for decades. But he's always been an inspiration to me because he um takes the bass into some directions that that are really unique and unexpected and and um kind of um not characteristic of the bass vocabulary so much um yeah uh but i would i think you guys would really enjoy talking to him because He's uh, kind of just carved out his own world of, of bass sounds and, and kind of adapted gear to, to meet his needs along those way, um, lines. <laughs> awesome. um, so yeah, uh, he's one person for sure. Um, I think it's always interesting to talk to people that have um, long history of um, a long career, long history in music and i can think of a few, few people like that uh, bob Glove being one guy who sure oh, yeah he's- you certainly would enjoy talking to i mean he's just yeah. a super guy very personable and um um has played with everybody for ages <laughs> so <laughs> it's not, not an invitation <laughs> yeah. amazing yeah yeah. Awesome. yeah and um i'm sure as soon as we sign off i'll think of others so i i could
2: give you that later
1: but i I tell um, you what
2: we could do is we could put them in the show notes for anybody that's listening you know we could we could just put it right in the show notes for the podcast so that oh sure because i know there's some credits and you know folks that we want to acknowledge uh definitely we'll just include that we'll include some of the pictures of the bases uh if you'll if you'll let us do that and uh it'll be it'll be just good for somebody who's you know wanting to take a look at some of the things that we've been talking about just put them put them right in the show notes
1: Dude. sure yeah i can share that with you for sure
2: awesome
0: really cool I, I i guess to to maybe wrap it up uh but i was sort of thinking of asking this before but then when you mentioned you know, you've been waiting for so long to actually get around to doing your your, your own solo record it kind of answered the question Where i was going to yeah ask, if you could do any project with anyone for, <laughs> for every you know what would it be and i suspect you know i guess if we take your your solar record maybe out of the equation because obviously that that has to be like uh, you know just yeah, constantly putting on the back burner just out of pure sacrifice you know at this point necessity uh, you know what what would that would that be uh, but I I guess I I was also thinking if you if you were gonna do you know, especially given how long you've been you know doing this and and, and the different hearts of this industry you've had some success with at this point you know between the playing live and the production and engineering and recording as a side person and that sort of thing you know Mm -hmm. if if you if you weren't doing this what else do you think you could possibly do that would give you the certain the same type of at least satisfaction that you could say you know and you know life is, you know, I, I like what I do, you know, if, if it wasn't this, I guess.
2: Yeah.
1: That's a really good question. Um, and it's hard for me to answer because I've been focused on music fairly continuously since I was about seven or eight years old. That's so nice. to think of doing anything else uh, <laughs> is is really foreign, is that, but uh, yeah. like
2: I sh- like- g- your brain a little <laughs> bit. You know, you're like, oh no. Yeah. I,
1: no. Well, on the other hand though, um, just being only completely immersed in music and nothing else is not healthy. You, know, you have to have a, right. a well-rounded experience of the world around you. And uh, it can make for a very boring musician to to really just be focused on music 24 seven and not have any other input. Uh, but um, I think uh, photography would be one thing that I I would delve into if I wasn't doing music because uh, I've always had an interest in it and have, Even done a self-published book of photography of my travels about ten years ago, so um, that is probably my answer. That's a that's a good one. I mean, uh, yeah, something. But uh,
0: photography is. uh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I'm sorry.
1: Photography is an area that's kind of analogous to music in that. with smartphones, everybody uh, is a genius photographer and uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, you, don't, you don't need yeah. years of, of um, art school training to, um, to come up with amazing images. So um, that's good and bad, obviously just like in music, um, yeah. when you have the ability to cut and paste and, and use samples and, and create music without a lot of, uh, of uh, serious training right um you know it it cuts both ways i mean there's some amazing music that's been made that way um just like how you go on instagram and see yeah some of the most amazing photos ever um, with people just pulling out their their iphones um but another thing i should say is um Maybe one reason why I haven't delved into a solo project sooner is I kind of enjoy being in the background or being part of an ensemble maybe more than being in the center of attention. And that may be something that that you find with bass players, um, not universally, but maybe more than some other instruments because it's possible to to have a lot of influence over the music um, really steer the music without an obvious um, uh, appearance of kind of being in the middle of things. Subversive. And um, yeah, subversive is a good word. And uh, I also, I think I'm really a chameleon musically um, because I like a lot of different kinds of music and and like to just um, try to play different styles as authentically as, as I can. Um, To varying degrees of success, but uh, (laughs) um, that can kind of that chameleon quality can make it sort of hard to hone in on one thing that defines you musically. Mm -hmm. So um, it's hard for people to relate to to a specific project or or album that is too diverse for their comprehension. (laughs) So um, I would kind of have to hone it into something um, fairly narrow, which I think I've done to some degree. Um, But you kind of pay the price of being uh, versatile in sometimes in making it harder to find your own identity.
2: So what kind of advice would you give to somebody that actually does that? Cause now, now I'm fascinated. We can't finish yet. So okay. <laughs> yeah. uh, what kind of advice would you give to somebody who is, you know, really just kind of getting, you know, getting going and trying to find their sound? Like, how do you, how do you explore that? You know, I've, I've seen musicians that, you know, they love the process you know, of, of getting there. And then there are some that I, you know, I just, I, I talked to and they're like, you know, I, I just, I wish I knew then what I knew now. Right. Because I could have, you know, I could have had so much more like enjoyment, you know, during that, during that, during that time, I'm just curious, kind of curious, kind of advice would you give somebody that's looking for that?
1: Well, um, first of all, just keep your ears open. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. don't be prejudiced about uh, a specific style of music um uh at least be um be open to checking something out and and seeing what you can learn from it mm-hmm. um and on the playing side um just get in as many diverse situations as possible playing with different people um of all levels you know it, Obviously, it it helps to to be motivated and inspired by playing with people that are better than you. But yeah. sometimes you can learn things from people that are approaching music from even a much more innocent level. So don't um, you know avoid any potential situations to make music with people. Um, be curious. Be open. Um, and also try to keep learning um, constantly. You know, um, you can never stop getting better and and gaining more skills and, and more knowledge and exposure to different kinds of music.
2: I love
0: that. Sure. I love yeah. that. That's probably a great place to stop. I can't top that.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I don't think I can either.
2: <laughs> That's good. Well, so this has been amazing. It really has. I've enjoyed it. I, I know, you know, I could probably speak for Frankie and, and the rest of the guys, it, you know, this has just been, this has been one of those things where we love sitting down and, and sort of pulling stories out of people and, and, you know, and then being able to share those with the audience is, has been something that Frankie and I've been talking about doing for a long, long time. And, you know, and then being able to also like get to make, you know, meet face to face with some of our, you know, the customers and, and just, you know, um, you know, allowing us to make, you know, sort of make that, you know, face-to-face connection has been a lot of fun too. So hopefully, uh, this has been, been fun for you too. And we're, we're definitely going to keep doing this as we, as we keep going.
1: Yeah. I'm, I'm honored you guys, uh, included me and, um, it's great to meet you and, and talk to you and, um, I hope we'll do it again sometime. You too.
2: Hey everybody! If you'd like to hear more from bass players, builders, techs, uh, just head over to our blog at bestbassgear.com/ebase. Or if you want to hear more uh, and listen to some of the podcasts like this one, you can just search for Best base Gears The Lowdown. Uh, if you'd like to just please, please just take a five seconds, and if you'd like this show and you want to support us, uh, I just have one simple request. Uh, please just take five seconds and click on the like or the follow button or leave us a five-star rating. Uh, just share this video or tag somebody that like to hear it. Uh, you know, we just helps us to get the word out. Uh, thank you so much. We're super excited. Frankie and I are working really hard on, on putting these things together and, and giving you uh, lots of uh, of interviews, just like this one. Um, we just need to get some, uh, get some love out there in order to, to get this podcast surfaced and, uh, people can find us on the, on the various podcast channels, whatever you guys use. Uh, super excited again. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, thanks for listening.